Hello, I'm Claire Bennett, host of the Original Thinkers podcast, where we take a wider, deeper dive into what it takes to have an original thought, the impact of it, and how it endures over time. At a time when original thinking couldn't be more important, I'll be talking to some of our country's leading creative minds about their creative process and about how creativity can improve lives and make a meaningful difference. On today's episode, I speak with Brody Neal. Brody is a Tasmanian-born, London-based furniture designer and maker. Since establishing his studio in London's East End, Brody worked with an impressive roster of clients, including Reva 1920, Swarovski, and Kundalini. He's collaborated with international brands, including Microsoft, Mercedes-Benz, and Alexander McQueen. And his limited edition works are included in galleries and private collections around the globe. I was lucky enough to have caught Brody here in Australia during Melbourne Design Week, which celebrates our nation's original thinkers. Welcome, Brody. Thank you. We're lucky enough to have caught you here in Australia for Melbourne Design Week, which celebrates our nation's original thinkers. Can you tell me why you think original thinking is so important? Well, I think uh, it's very important and it's it's basically what I've kind of cornered my entire career around, you know, to be, let's say, kind of avant-garde and, you know, really on the edge of what's possible. And I think that it's something I've kind of prided myself in to really push the limits and push myself. And I think you really kind of surprise yourself and you surprise the audience. And it's clear that you see the value of original thought in influencing change in the world because that comes so strongly through in your work. Particularly, I love the work that you've done using fragments of ocean plastic. Capsule, for example, where you're drawing attention to the fact that there are beaches in the world that are more plastic than sand. Has this work led to change that you're aware of or is the focus really raising awareness on issues? I certainly hope it's led to change. Uh, It certainly has led to greater awareness. The work that I started doing with Ocean Plastic kind of kicked off back in Tasmania in 2015, you know, when I was visiting the beaches of of Bruni Island at John Wardle's Shearer's Quarters. And I was was by myself and I was really shocked to see how much plastic there was, you know, and like, you know, this, this is a remote area and kind of sparsely populated, but then all of a sudden there were like, you know, drinking straws and toothbrushes and packaging and all this type of stuff. So that really kind of hit me. And I went away from there and thought, how could this material, which is, which is you know, designed for life, you know, designed for a service for a long time, how could this material go back into circularity and then become the building blocks of something new? So then I kind of went away from there. And I was very fortunate because about six months later, as this idea was kind of simmering away on the back burner, the opportunity to represent Australia at the London Design Biennale came up. And this seemed the perfect opportunity to literally bring the issue of ocean plastic to the round table in the form of the gyro table, which was the centrepiece and the focal point of the exhibition. And this was a table that's 1.8 metres in diameter and made up of a kaleidoscopic mosaic with a graphic that basically depicts the, the world, you know, the analysis of the world with 36 lines across and 36 kind of revolutions. And within it, uh, there's a colour gradient of white and blue and black, which obviously represents the oceans. And 
These tiles are made from over half a million fragments of ocean plastic that's been collected from around the world. So that's how the idea kind of starts and matures and develops. And there's a lot of refinement along the way, but it's really kind of challenging our perception of what these materials could be. And then from obviously that Biennale, which was at Somerset House in London, as I mentioned, really got a lot of attention and a lot of eyeballs on it, which kind of propelled me well beyond the the role of a designer and into, let's say, more of a environmentalist or a spokesperson for you know this international issue, speaking of the world's media and presented at the European Union and also the United Nations. But for example, when it was shown here in Melbourne uh, as part of the National Galleries um, of Victoria's permanent collection, you know, they had over a million visitors come through to see it. And if that can distill some change in our daily habits and our daily attitudes towards plastic, recycling, circularity, then that's a positive thing. Absolutely, it's a positive thing. And, I mean, that would have to be, would you think, your most famous piece so far? Has that become the most famous piece in your collection of work? Yes, as I kind of travel the world and catch up and meet people, they're always quick to tell me where they first saw that or the fact that they did see that piece. It's quite well recognised, dating back, uh, a few years prior to that, there was a piece that was called the Remix, which is kind of like a precursor to the to the gyro table, and that was very much one of my first forays into recycled materials. These are very much drastically uh, upcycled. It certainly doesn't appear to be kind of you know art from trash. It's very refined and polished, and hence why they you know find themselves in art galleries and museums. Well, it's incredibly beautiful, isn't it? Which is in itself an awareness raising for people who are viewing these things to see what was trash is now something incredibly beautiful and worth cherishing in their home. So certainly you are having an impact on the world. It would be amazing to see that story in a documentary of some sort. Much of your work is also inspired by nature. So I'm thinking of Glacier, for example, which is an incredibly beautiful piece. I think it would be a very attractive thing to sit on on a warm day. Do you think your Tasmanian heritage is the driving force behind that connection with nature? Yeah, it's always been a, an endless form of, of inspiration. It's always been inherent in me, this very organic and kind of biomorphic kind of form language, which has always been there. And I kind of draw upon moments of childhood and growing up and being surrounded by the, the wilderness. Also, some of the maritime history or the presence of the river and, and, and everything that goes on about it is an influence as well. So, yeah, there's a very um, distinct kind of form language there that taps into, in, into all that kind of makes me up. We certainly love the state that we're in and we, we certainly love to see people of your capability out there championing its beauty to the world. So you're known as a pioneer in sustainable product design, which is, as we talked about, turning waste into something valuable and beautiful. Is this the legacy you hope to leave? Is that kind of the driving objective behind your work or are there other elements in there as well that you're hoping to achieve? I'd say the driving objective hasn't really wavered since the very early days. I, I grew up in Hobart making furniture in my family shed, you know, and just kind of tinkering and putting scraps together and things like that. 
but you know, I was making small things like mirrors and stools and chairs and things like that. It's just been an evolution from one to the other. And you talk about, you know, creative thinking and being original and it's like always wanting to improve and to, and to challenge myself. And of course, if I challenge myself, then thankfully there's an audience that sees and appreciates that new offering, let's say. And it hasn't really wavered from that, from, from day dot to, to now. So the sustainable side of things has probably come up more so in the last five or six years, certainly, of course, because of the gyro table and its, you know, its awareness kind of program. And the fact that I've then, from that, been kind of singled out as a spokesperson for many issues, not just the ocean plastic. So, yeah, it's become a little bit more kind of prominent, but I guess deep down it's still the same creative drive, the same inspiration. It's just going up a level. Let's dig into that creative side of things. What does it take to have an original thought? You know, do you need to be brave? Do you need to find inspiration somewhere? Is there a dedication and a discipline to it? What do you think it takes to be an original thinker? The way it works for me is that the idea is more a kind of what if moment, you know, a moment of spontaneity. It would be almost like you're walking down the street and you think, oh, you know, what what happens if you put ocean plastic together and, and, and made this new material, let's say? What happens if you turned a material on its edge and uh, all of a sudden built from the outside in? And so therefore it can be material-led, it can be process-led, it could be form-led. And the idea is usually very instinctive and very quick and literally as you're walking down the street, by the time you get to the next block, in your head you've probably got it all kind of solved. So I suppose there's a lot of daydreaming in that side of things. But then comes the technical task, the real rigour to resolve it to the very high standard that we've come to expect. And that just, yeah, that takes time and, and, a, and a lot of dedication. And, and a lot of people as well, you know, it's, not, it's obviously not just myself. In the form of ocean plastic pieces, for example, it involves, you know, marine biologists, oceanographers that help with the the data and the and the mapping and all this type of stuff and then you know beachcombers dog walkers litter pickers all this kind of thing to help obviously collect it and then even when it arrives with us you know there's there's a lot of processes involved so yeah it's a real team effort and a collaboration so it's a lot of relationships and sometimes that could take a bit of persuasion you get a lot of people who think you're crazy and you and you're mad but i think if you've got a track record that becomes a little bit easier and when I asked that question, I said, you know, does it take bravery and does it take some dedication? I think there is always that element of people are going to think you're crazy, people are going to think you're mad, and perhaps there are a lot of people who have an, an original thought who never give it the time to simmer, as you said, to really condense in your mind and consolidate into something that's worth pursuing. But then that bravery to go out there and say to other people, I know it sounds crazy, but work with me here. There's something really special at the end. And then having the ability, as you say, to persuade and bring people along with you. So the thought itself is one thing, but there's so much more to being an original thinker than just a creative thought, isn't there? Yes, there's the bigger picture, the vision of the bigger picture and the dedication that it's going to take and you need to take it there and 
you may need to break it down into its smaller pieces so it is, you know, stage by stage and involve those people who are in that stage so they don't get dwarfed by the by the undertaking. I think that if you kind of get that maybe, you know, let's say you get the butterflies in the stomach, you're not really 100% sure how this one's going to go. I've kind of grown to know that if you kind of get that feeling, sometimes it's a good thing because you really are pushing the boundaries. You really are putting something out there that there is, there is no, there's, there's no precursor. There's no, there's no basis, you know, for it to kind of form on. It really is avant-garde and, and, and out there. How do you nurture that creativity then in yourself? Is it something that you have to practice like a musician practices their instrument? You know, do you have to create a certain environment for yourself to be able to think creatively or do you have to have an openness of thought? Are you always on the lookout? You know, are you scanning for the next thing that's going to sort of flick that switch and send you into that state of having some butterflies? How do you foster creativity in yourself? Allowing the time for it to happen. You know, it certainly doesn't happen sitting at your desk for, you know, eight or nine hours a day, pen and paper or the computer. You know, you've got to get out, you've got to see things. And then you know that when these ideas strike, um, you're going to be miles away from a pen and paper, miles away from your computer. So you just got to kind of hold that thought. And, and that kind of, let's say, rigor and resolve that I kind of mentioned earlier, you know, that's the things that kind of like play it over and over and over in your mind, really refine it, you know, almost like kind of, you know, layers of time or, you know, how a, a wave might shape a rock kind of thing. And that just really helps it kind of take shape. So I can't let you finish without telling me about the many pieces you have on exhibit here in Melbourne for Design Week. Can you tell me a little bit about them? The main feature piece is the recall table, which was created in collaboration with Design Tasmania and Hydrowood and first exhibited at the London Craft Week in October last year in London's Belgravia. It was extremely well received and off the back of that the NGV invited us to kind of present it here in Melbourne as part of their inaugural Melbourne Design Fair. It is a table centrepiece and it turns Tasmanian Hydrowood you know on its head on its edge and I guess my my starting point of the idea or that 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 curious moment was how could you display the vivid variety of Tasmanian timbers by using the smaller offcuts of veneer, which would be a byproduct of panel production, and to basically amalgamate these pieces together by spiraling them, almost you think like a um, like a ball of string, kind of getting bigger and bigger with every wind. And starting with an elliptical void and literally going around and around and around and around. Uh, 1,200 times, and slowly, literally, millimetre by millimetre, this would emerge. And after 3.5 kilometres of veneer, the recall table was formed. And what you're left with when you, when you sand back through all those layers and kind of get that flush tabletop is quite an amazing graphic. You know, it's almost kind of like the the rings of satin as they kind of spiral around and the placement of these veneers or the order of them that they are laid down 
is kind of dictated by a kind of parametric or mathematical algorithm. A lot of my work is definitely the kind of coming together of, you know, inspired by nature, the handcrafted, but also pushing the limits through, you know, the complex computation of of digital design. So here was this kind of coming together of that where we could create this amazing, you know, graphic and, and all of it is amazing, beautiful Tasmanian timber. It certainly is an incredible table and it, it almost looks like the growth rings on a tree as well, that circling out. The, those 1,200 times, I, I'm sure you've been asked this a lot, but how long did that take? And is it therapeutic? You know, is, it, is there something very mindful about just, you know, that repetition? Yeah, it was, it was actually quite a rewarding process. It was like at the end of the day, when you look at where you started and where you finished, you know, you could see a, a good day's work there, which um, it was a very different way of making furniture. Let's say, you know, sometimes you would start with a piece of wood and you cut it down. You know, in this case, you start with nothing and you build it up. So it was, it was a, a very different process. It would really emerge and... Yeah, you know, by the time you kind of got into that rhythm, yes, it was very therapeutic uh, as you're just kind of going round and round and round, literally wearing the floor of the studio out. I have to say there is something quite beautiful about what you just said about you start with a piece of timber and you cut it down, but here you started with the waste product and you built it up into something beautiful. And I think if there was one thing I could really take away from what I've learnt from you that just sums you up that sustainable product design so beautifully because maximising recovery and the value of these precious timber species that we have is always at the forefront of the mind of the people who process them and finding ways to utilise what's once been considered waste and turning it into a high-value product is certainly always the objective and this is an incredible example of that. What was a fantastic experience is that, you know, it's been a long time since I've used Tasmanian timbers and um, it was the fragrance that really took me back. You know, it's like when you get that smell and it just kind of teleport you back to another time. And it really took me back to my kind of university days because, you know, all that sanding of wood and the smell and the, the fragrance. And the one that really did it to me, like, of course, you would think it would be hue and pine because it's so, so distinct. But for me, it was the myrtle. And I was really kind of drawn to that. And I think over the years of working with a lot of timber all around the world, it's made me realise how unique that myrtle really is in, in its kind of pinkness, you know, from, from pale, I don't know, you know, salmon right through to kind of deep purple. You know, it really is quite unique and there's not a lot of timbers out there that, that, that have that spectrum or, or, or have that workability, quality and so on. So, you know, I was really kind of drawn to that. And the blackwood as well, you know, like that was probably uh, a, a timber that I never really used a lot in my earlier years. I kind of maybe associated it with my grandparents' furniture or something like that. So maybe with a little bit of age myself, I've kind of seen that in a different light. So do you think maybe we could expect to see some incredible myrtle piece coming out in your future works, Brody? Yeah, well, you know, I was uh, I visited... Um, Hydro wood last week, basically to see what they've got, and uh, there were some amazing pieces of myrtle which really need to be celebrated. Is to some 
you know, let's say beautiful pieces of furniture. So, yeah, definitely. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us from Melbourne Design Week that you've got out and about? So the two other pieces that we've got is Capsule Hourglass, which was produced in um, 2019. That was produced for the Milan Design Week. And that was definitely created to really be a kind of provocative kind of um, object to really symbolise, you know, that time is running out. You know, this was a real message in a bottle, the, the hourglass that replaces sand with ocean plastic. It's a beautiful little kind of double-walled, glass-blown, kind of hourglass shape held inside a capsule, and then it's capped off with stainless steel etched caps, which have the northern hemisphere on one end and the southern hemisphere on the other. It has the coordinates where the plastic's collected and then just details of dates, etc. So it really is a kind of time capsule. That's been quite successful, and it's a real talking point, and it's a real object that symbolises you know, the urgency of, of our moment. Is that piece a one-off or is that something that you could produce if people wanted to purchase it? Yeah, we're going to produce it as a, an addition of 100. So there are already many of them around the world. There's a couple here in Melbourne. So it is designed to be something that can be produced in those edition numbers. It'd be nice to send them to a few key leaders, wouldn't it, around the world? Yes, which, you know, we have done, mainly in the US. And then the other piece is new. It's having its kind of international debut this week. So here in Australia, I have a, um, a kind of production brand, which is called Made in Ratio, which is like a, a diffusion line where we do small bat production of pieces. So this is something that is more accessible and we can do projects, etc. you know, hotels and lobbies, bars, etc., as well as residential. And that sells through the nationwide retailer Living Edge. And this was a perfect opportunity for us to take that Tasmanian Hydra wood material and experience and then to realise something that is for the contract, uh, residential contract industry, and that's in the form of the Atlas table, which is basically like a, let's say, southern hemisphere of concentric circles in Tasmanian blackwood, hydro wood. And it's a multifunctional design, which is a coffee table and merged with a, with a bookshelf. Beautiful. Well, I look forward to seeing some images of that. We've been out filming during the week and I can't wait to see all of that come back. Now, I'm very conscious, Brody, that this is your first trip home probably in two years, I imagine. So we don't want to take up any more of your time, but thank you so much for speaking with us today. I know we've gone over time because that was ridiculously fascinating and I could have kept going, but let's leave it there. Thank you again. And I've got to say, as a Tasmanian, we're very proud of you. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you. You too. Thanks, Brody. Thanks, Claire. Thanks once again, Brody, for taking the time to speak with us. Make sure you check out the show notes at originalthinkers.com.au where you'll find further information and links to everything we talked about in today's show, including a video about Recoil and Brody's other works at Melbourne Design Week. Also, thank you to the sponsors of this episode, Original Tasmanian Timber. Make sure you visit tasmaniantimber.com.au, the ultimate resource for architects, designers and anyone interested in local, sustainable and beautiful timbers. 
and also Ablewood by Neville Smith Forest Products who make flooring, lining, mouldings and decorative timber products from Tasmanian oak, expertly crafted in Tasmania since 1924. Visit ablewood.com.au for more information. And finally, thank you for joining me. Join me next time when I speak with Fiona Lyder. What has always driven Spencer Lyder and always driven me is a fascination for the why of the thing, not just the wow of the thing. There needs to be a reason for things to exist and it can be and should be obviously beauty, but it really should also carry with it the embodied elements of care for our planet, care for ourselves, and the stories behind why it's being built.